permitted to print this Bible. And that way uh, England could stay in control spiritually and religiously and with the Bible and all of that. So when the Revolutionary War broke out, there uh, we didn't get any over here. And uh, Robert Aiken offered to print. And uh, he went to the convening Congress and talk to them about authorizing, because at that point it took a government's authorization just to print the Bible. And so he went, and it was John Adams who would become our second president. He went to John Adams and shared that uh, he's got a printing press and he would be willing to print the Bible, but he needs to make sure he has permission within the colonies to be able to print that. Um, In his first appeal, and and John Adams uh, uh, did uh, uh, I don't want to use the word lobby, but he presented the need and encouraged Congress to, to let him do this. And John Adams was very much involved in trying to get this to happen. There was a delay because before they could even finish that session, I believe that particular day when they were discussing it, they had to flee for their lives because the British were coming in and they had to close their session, flee. And it wasn't until sometime later they were able to take it up again and deal with it. Finally, Congress approved the printing of the the Aikens Bible. It was the King James translation. He printed 10,000 of them. And here's something that is unique about that. Uh, It is the only Bible ever approved by the U.S. Congress. The only one. It is the only Bible that was recommended by Congress to the Americans to read. It was the first King James Bible made or printed in America. It was the first English Bible printed and made available and given to schools. It was printed only six years after the Declaration of Independence and five years before the Constitution of the United States was completed. And so it is at the heart of our our foundation and who we are as a nation. And certainly it was read by many. Now, 10,000 is all that was published. Out of that, there are about somewhere between 20 and 30 of these Bibles that are known to exist. Most of them are in museums. There was one in the Denver area this week at a particular meeting. We were there, and I was able... Now, it's in a glass case, and it is very old and very fragile, and was able to hold that. And I have a picture of Mrs. Miller and I where I'm holding that. And, and do you know, to me, that's significant. This is a part of our history. It is also a testimony as to how important God's Word was to our founding fathers. They try to rewrite our history And they try to write out and purge out our Christian heritage in the founding of this nation. I heard something just this week that should be rather distressing. They were talking about uh, the loyalists to a particular um, candidate for president in this next election cycle. And they said they are Christian nationalists. And they made a very emphatic statement. They're not Christian. They're Christian nationalists. 
And I'm trying to think, okay, what is the significance here? And they said, these Christian nationalists believes that their rights came from God and that not from the government. And they were saying, it's the government that has the authority to either give or take, to grant or not grant our rights. And folks, that's going to catch on. And that's going to spread. Because the ones that spread it, that's part of their agenda. But folks, as a Christian, first and foremost, we do believe that our rights are endowed from God, our Creator. Our Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution, it is stated there that that is where they came from and is believed. And the reason we believe that is because of what we read in the Word of God. And so it is very important that we have a more sure Word of God that we can trust. Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1, if you would stand, I will begin reading from verse 15. Verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came down when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost let's go to the Lord in prayer Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the Bible that you have given to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us the plan and the will and the the gospel message, salvation, our origin. What we look forward to is a hope for the future. We want to thank you for giving all of that and recording it in a Bible that we may trust today. And now, Father, as we consider this passage and this great truth this morning, strengthen us in our resolve. Uh, Strengthen us in in our uh, desire to read it and to obey it and to share it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I'm going to deal with a subject matter that uh, I deal with almost once a year. And um, one reason I think it is important to deal with this is because there is a constant attack upon the Word of God. And not only a constant attack upon the Word of God, 
But when we live in that, sometimes we become a little bit comfortable with it. And then sometimes it becomes easier to maybe start giving credibility to it. And not only that, but why we use the King James translation and an understanding why we take this position, why we trust the Word of God. And so that is where we're going in our message this morning, is the importance of the Word of God. So Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Understand this foundational truth about more sure. One reason that it is more sure is because it never changes. It stays the same year in, year out, year in, and year out. Uh, the Lord said in Matthew five eighteen that it would never pass away and that it would endure forever. And he wasn't just talking about the thoughts or the ideas. He said every jot and every tittle. It says that he gave us his word. And so we know that, that it will endure forever. Truth never changes. The word of God never changes because God never changes. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, both the Old Testament and the New Testament specifically says that God never changes. Therefore, his word never changes. What God has said about right and wrong from the beginning to today and even throughout eternity, right and wrong has never changed. I think one of the challenges that we are facing in our culture as our society has moved away from God is they're trying to change what is right and wrong. And sometimes they try to use God to justify it. And they try to call evil good and good evil, but in God's eyes, right and wrong has never changed. God's plan for marriage between a man and a woman has never changed. You you go back to the first marriage, there was a man and a woman. You follow down through in, into the New Testament. God said it's between a man and a woman. And that uh, what God hath put together, let no man put asunder. And so we understand marriage has not changed. The family has not changed. Here's another great peril that we are facing in our culture. The, the globalist movement that the left and one of the parties is just very submerged in is they believe that children are in essence wards of the state. They believe the government owns them. They, and they've been pushing this for a long time. We dealt with this in the late 70s, early 80s when we fought the uh, Christian school battle in Nebraska. And there was that mentality trying to creep in at that time. Folks, the Bible specifically says that children are a heritage of the Lord and they are given to the parents and the parents have the responsibility to raise and train their children, not the government. And so we see that God's plan for right and wrong never changes. God's plan about marriage has never changed. God's plan for the family has never changed. God's plan for morality has never changed. I am not surprised when the world at large 
not only lives in immorality, but promotes moral perversion. But it is a great reproach to the name of Jesus Christ when Christians think it's okay as well. Because God has not changed. And this is just a sampling. Because our God cannot and will not ever change. The word of God never changes. Right and wrong never changes. It stays the same from eternity to eternity. The word is not like uh, some things that get better with age. It has always been at the peak of its greatness. We have a more sure word for several reasons. The divinely preserved written word is better than passing on verbally uh, uh, accounted uh, things. Um, And let me give this example as a sampling. I have grown up and I've watched the, the stories that my father, and I've shared this, but because it's personal, I've observed it. It's easy for me to testify and share this. But I remember when I was younger and the stories that my dad told about the family and, and what happened with the family and, and the community and things that he had done. That was one version. But over the last 40 years, my how they have changed. The stories have grown and been embellished in such a way you would never recognize them as they were first told. And do you know, that's the challenge of of things being passed on verbally. And somebody said, um, uh, came up to a preacher and said, do you know what? Uh, I spoke with the Lord and, and he told me this morning that uh, you're supposed to let me preach from your pulpit. And uh, this guy was an apostate. He was false in his doctrine. And obviously in this way, and the preacher was very wittingly and in his response, he says, oh, well, if you believe God can speak to us, then that must have been what happened this morning. God spoke to me and said, you're supposed to give me $5,000 before you preach. (laughs) He turned around and walked away. You see, there's no way today to validate when somebody comes along and says, well, the Lord spoke to me and said we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to do that. There's the challenge of things just being handed down verbally from one generation to another. Now, we do understand God did speak verbally, and God can choose however he wants to preserve his word, but he has chosen the written form to preserve it. We have a more sure word also because we have a more solidly confirmed word of God. Peter said that they were not following fables. But there was a unity of the witness in what was written. They were eyewitnesses. Here he uses the testimony of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ when Peter, James, and John was with the Lord Jesus Christ in in the Mount of Transfiguration and, and when they saw his glory of heaven radiating from him and they heard the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son. They were eyewitnesses and there were multiple witnesses that were united in the testimony of what happened. And so we have multiple witnesses to validate what was said there. The uh, 
something else that the New Testament believers, in particular the, the apostles who had been disciples, and particularly those who wrote much of the New Testament uh, writings, they lived during the life of Christ, and they were eyewitnesses. And there were several of them that were eyewitnesses. There, there was over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of him being resurrected, his resurrected person. Over 500 eyewitnesses of that. And their testimonies all were unified to the truth of what happened. And so we see that it has been solidly confirmed as to what is written by a multitude of eyewitnesses. But something else, you you take James and John and Peter, and maybe Paul, even though he was not a follower of Christ at the time. But you remember me saying that in the conception, birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension of Christ, that time frame fulfilled over 330 Old Testament prophecies meticulously. These authors of the New Testament were eyewitnesses of those fulfillments. I'm not going to say every one of them knew everything about the Old Testament. But I believe it is safe to say that each of them had a good cognizance and a good awareness and a good understanding of the Old Testament. That even if they didn't recognize all 330 or more, they would have recognized a high percentage of them. And they would have seen, wow, the Old Testament said he was going to do this and we watched him do this. The Old Testament said he would do this, and we watched this happen. The Old Testament said this would happen, and it happened. They were eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of those prophecies. And then you talk about the certainty of the writers. Can you imagine just taking, I was going to say, eight religious authors today. Maybe take eight Baptist preachers. And have them write a a 27-chapter book about the Bible and about doctrine and about timing and all of that. And you might be surprised at how many things they disagree on. (laughs) You'll find preachers disagree on the exact day that Jesus Christ was crucified. Was it Wednesday? Was it Thursday? Was it Friday? You you will find uh, Baptist preachers that disagree on uh, the end times, on some timing and some things that's going to happen. But when you read the 27 books of the New Testament, there is 100% unity in chronology, in doctrine, in events, There's 100% unity in the Bible. I want to give, take just a few moments, and give a little history as to why we accept the authenticity of our King James Version Bible that we use. And and it's not only the, the matter of the Bible, it's not only just this translation. It, it involves the, the manuscript used, 
the method of translating used, the motive for translating, all of this must come together to be right. But let me give you some reasons why we believe that the King James translation is an accurate Bible that you can trust and why it has been trusted by Christians for well over 400 years. To start with, by 300 B.C., that's 300 years before Christ, the 39 books of the Old Testament had been collected and recognized as official books of the canon. Uh, You'll find that Ezra, the scribe of the Old Testament, was very much involved in helping to put this together. But by 300 B.C., and this is uh, the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, about 400 B.C., and 100 years later, but 300 years before the life of Christ, all 39 books of the Old Testament had been collected and recognized as the official book of the Old Testament that they were authentic, that they carried the authority of God, and they should be recognized. Now, during this time, it was Israel that was the custodian of the written Word of God and, and even the oral Word of God that had been given. And they were responsible for uh, making sure they had its purity and its preservation. The, the scribes and the priesthood, it was their responsibility. And it is interesting, since that time, and even those that reject the King James today, they still accept those same manuscripts of the Old Testament as being uh, acceptable and authoritative, the Word of God. The 27 books of the New Testament. And you'll find today they're, they're talking about, well, we found this lost book and that lost book, and, and I forget the names of a variety of those, but they talk about all of these different books supposedly have, they have since found. Do you know what? They weren't necessarily lost. They were simply rejected. The early church fathers knew that they were not inspired works they rejected them and would not include them in the 27 books so when you go from Matthew to Revelation there's 27 books and by the early part of the second century and the end of the first century it had already been determined that these 27 books were the authentic accepted books of the Bible. Now, that was not put into a public format until 397 A.D. when the Council of Carthage met, and it was a multitude of leaders from, from churches in a broad area. Because there, there had been some debate, because there had been attacks on the Word of God, because people were trying to either take away and add they wanted to put a widespread public announcement and approval that only these 27 books were the accepted books of the Word of God. And so in 397, at the Council of Carthage, they made that public statement, even though by the good churches uh, that existed around the first century and into the early second century, that had already been determined. And so that's why we know that there are only 66 books in the Bible. 
The history has validated these were the ones accepted. Those are the only ones that we accept. Now, when it comes to the King James translation, here's why we accept it. And here, this takes it down just a little narrower. It was translated using the majority text, which had over 5,500 Greek manuscripts. You see, in, in, in when the King James was translated, it, you couldn't say that there was always all these full Bible manuscripts available. But they would take all of these manuscripts. There's over 5,500 of them. There was multiple copies, say, of Matthew, multiple copies available uh, of 1 Timothy. And, and you go through the books. And some of those manuscripts may not have had all of a given book, but parts of a, of a given book. And they had o- over 5,500 manuscripts that they compared notes, compared what was written to be able to translate and come to the conclusion of what we have in our King James translation. This is opposed to the minority text, which included about three, primarily three manuscripts. Now, here's the difference. The King James translation is taken from the majority text, over 5,500 manuscripts. Most every other translation is taken from what is called the minority text. There was only three primary manuscripts from which they have taken this. Out of that, those three often disagreed with the majority manuscripts, and that's why the majority rejected those three minority, because they did not agree with the majority of the 5,500. But not only that, but of the three that they did use... They disagreed with each other off as many times with each other as they disagreed with the majority manuscripts. And so that's why we reject the other uh, manuscripts. That's why we reject translations that come from them. And you will find there's a couple of arguments that are used uh, for those that uh, with your NIV and and all of these other uh, translations that are out there. One argument is, well, they are more accurate to the manuscripts. And there is a certain truth to that. They are more accurate to the minority text, but they are not more accurate to the majority text. And so they're more accurate to the ones that have been rejected for centuries and centuries. But the King James is more accurate to the majority text, which has been accepted for centuries and centuries along the way. Another argument that they will use is, well, these are more accurate accurate to the original documents. That's a lie. Nobody can hold that argument. I don't care whether you're one that defends the King James or you're one that defends all of these other translations. Nobody can claim that argument. And the reason being is the original manuscripts have been destroyed for centuries upon centuries. They've not been available. Some of them just plain wore out and deteriorated and they're gone. 
Some of them were actually physically destroyed. And one of the reasons they would destroy old manuscripts is because it, it's, it's not like some of our digital copies that we have. But one of the reasons that those that were committed to preserving God's word, that once they made a new copy, the old manuscript was destroyed, is because as manuscripts get older, they become frail. Letters and words can become smudged. Pages can be torn or start to break off. And they didn't want anybody speculating, what is this smudged word right here? Or what words went into what is torn? It's torn right through the word and we can't really make out the letters that go there. So to ensure that it would not be wrongly copied, they would destroy the old copies to preserve the integrity and the purity of God's word. And so nobody can claim that their translation is more accurate to the original because nobody has the originals to make a comparison. Not us, not them, not anyone. Another one of their arguments is, well, they claim that the minority is older. And since it's older, it must be more accurate. And there's some deception behind that. Tischendorf is the one that found that particular document. He admits that there was no date and no scribe on that document. And we understand that manuscript that he got a hold of and said he found, and for years he would not let anybody else look at, but it was one that was supposed to be in a trash can and disposed because of errors. But he tried to claim that it was older. However, he admits there was no date on it, and there was no scribe signature. And so... We don't know whether it was older or not. But just because something is older doesn't make it better and doesn't make it more accurate. Because even if it was an older copy, Gnosticism was still in existence at that time and it was uh, defiling much of God's word. When you study uh, Paul's writing and John's writing, writings. One of the things that they were already fighting before the end of the first century of the church was Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, did not believe in the deity of Christ. It, it changed how the, uh, uh, the spiritual and the physical, uh, they tried to separate it and they said, if you're, if you're good spiritually, you can be bad physically. I mean, there were so many bad things in Gnosticism that came out of paganism and they were trying to bring it into Christianity. And they were trying to put that in some of these manuscripts. And you will discover that Tischendorf, who said he found that manuscript, Westcott and Hort are the two that put together the manuscripts that most of these translations are taken to and is highly referred to. These men did not believe in a literal creation. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in a universal flood. They did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in the virgin birth. 
These are the men that put these manuscripts together from which most every other translation is taken from. I'll not trust men that do not believe God's word in how they handle the word of God. Uh, Then it goes beyond that. The method. We talked about the different things that that validated it and and the manuscripts and, and why... It's not just a translation that we have today, but it's the manuscripts that the translation is taken from. And we believe, and I believe, that any translation of the Bible today, and there are, what did I say, over 4,000 languages that still do not have the Bible? I believe those translations must come from the right manuscripts. So they'll get the right end result. So it, it's, it's the manuscript, but there's a method. Verbal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence. The King James, the method of translation for the King James was verbal equivalence. In other words, if this is what the Greek said, let's find an English word that says the exact same thing. If this is what the Hebrew said, let's find the exact equivalent word in English or whatever language you are translating into, whether it be uh, Tagalog, whether it be Estonian, whether it be uh, Chechua, whatever the language may be. We want to find a word that matches the, the manuscript word. Now, we understand not every language has one word to match the word in Greek or in Hebrew. And so sometimes it may take two words out of the English language or whatever language. It may take two words to mean the same thing that one word in Greek means. Or sometimes there may be two words in the Greek or two words in the Hebrew. And in the English language, we have one word that means exactly what those two words mean. So that's what we mean by word equivalent, verbal equivalent. And when you go by verbal equivalent, trying to keep the, the, the purity of God's word, sometimes it's not going to read as smooth or as easily when you go from one language to another language. But we are more committed to the purity of God's word than the smoothness of it. Dynamic equivalent, and you'll find different levels of this, but by by and large they take what the old manuscript says and then they write what they think it means. Now let me ask you this. How many of you would like to be falsely accused of murder. You know you, you did not commit murder. You happened to be in the presence when it happened. But you're falsely accused of that particular murder. How many of you would want the prosecuting attorney to get up and say, do you know what? Here's the word-for-word statement that the uh, uh, accused said. But here's what I think he really meant. How many of you would trust that trial to come out right for the prosecuting attorney to try to reinterpret your words to say what he thinks you meant in what you said? That's what they are doing with God's word, with dynamic equivalent. And so there's the difference even in the method. Now, here's some other things that I want to share with you as to why we use the King James translation. 
1895, there was a bunch of papyri found in Egypt. It dated back to 125 A.D. And as they compared and translated and read the papyri, they have discovered that it agrees with the King James translation. You know, one of the accusations that we have had over the years, they said, well, it's been copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And there's been so many errors for all of these copies. But isn't it interesting, as recent as 1895, they found some manuscripts that were written in 125 A.D. and it still matches today's translation. That's marvelous. That's the power of God to preserve His Word. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They dated back to 200 years before Christ. And uh, it included the, uh, the uh, book of Isaiah out of the Old Testament. Up until this point, liberals has criticized the book of Isaiah as being uh, written way after the, many of those prophecies were fulfilled and that it was written by two different authors. authors and, and they had all kinds of accusations of rejecting the book of Isaiah. This Document these scrolls found in 1947 that dated clear back to 200 years before the life of Christ, and they discovered that they matched what our King James has in it. Isn't that incredible? I'd like to say it silenced the critics, but they probably just went for another argument. Another one is the minuscule cursives. It is a group of about 2,800 Greek manuscripts that have been written between 800 and 1,500. They were used in a vast diversity and various places geographically. They didn't all come from one location, but there was a multiplicity of locations. They quote verse after verse after verse in these cursives. They match how our King James puts it. One more, there's about 2,200 lectionaries. These were messages that were written by uh, early preachers, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, and and into that time frame. These are messages that had been handwritten. They would handwrite the scriptures into their messages because not everybody would have a copy of the Bible. And so they would handwrite the verses into their sermon notes and everything. And out of 2,200 lectionaries, they have found all but just a handful of New Testament verses that have been recorded in those, and they match the King James translation. Folks, this is testimony after testimony after testimony of why we believe we have a more sure word of prophecy. All of the copying, I, I could go into detail how the scribes would copy the Word of God to preserve it. Not one person would just write it. Uh, one would read it, one would write it, and another would write what he read. And if ever there was any digit or letter that was wrong, they would destroy the whole manuscript, that whole page, and start over. They would count the total number of letters or characters. And make sure they both had the same number of characters. They would count to where the middle character was. They would find that middle character, make sure it's the same character. They were meticulous in copying and preserving it. Well, now that I got past my introduction, I got the rest of the message. (laughs) 
let me give you some things here before we close. God did communicate in different ways. He did give the spoken word. You'll find uh, Adam. God spoke with Adam. Adam lived 930 years. And whatever communication God spoke, you'll find that God spoke to Noah, to Abraham. God did use the spoken word. But when Moses recorded what was there, it was by divine inspiration to get those verbal spoken words accurate. It was through Moses, David, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Matthew, Paul, Peter, the list goes on. They were commanded to write down. That's the written word. It was written not only for the people at present to be able to hear what God had to say. It was just like when Moses, God spoke to Moses and he would speak to the people, but God said, let's write it down. He was commanded, Exodus 7, 17, 14, he was commanded to write it down to preserve it. <clears throat> And so there's the written word, so it could be given not only to that uh, generation that he was preaching to, but preserved for generations to come. The last time that is stated is in the book of Revelation. Nearly 40 other men in between there wrote God's word. It's the written word. Then thirdly, first by spoken word, by written word, and then by living word. Uh, Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 uh, talks about how he had spoken and it was written for Old Testament. Now he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, the living word. In uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. That's the living word. You cannot say Separate the living word of who Jesus Christ is from the written word. They are totally united. All three were God's plan and God's way, each one serving a particular purpose for a particular time. But over the long haul, it was God's plan that it be the written word be preserved and authoritative for you and I today. Having the written word is better than a multitude of miracles. You know, a lot of people say, well, if I had miracles, maybe I'd believe God. That's not necessarily true. In Matthew chapter 11, Christ said about Capernaum, he said, more miracles were done in that city and a couple of others than any other place. And yet the unbelief was greater there than any other place. In fact, he said that if all of the miracles that had been performed there had been performed at Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented of their wickedness and sin and turned to God. Miracles do not guarantee your faith. Having the written word is better than someone coming back from the grave. Every so often we have another person that says, I was dead and I talked to Jesus and I got a new message for you. Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 16 verse 31 when he was dealing with the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man sent Lazarus back to my brothers. Let them hear from him. If somebody come back from the dead, Jesus Christ specifically said, if they will not listen and believe to the law and the prophets, he was talking about the Old Testament. He said, if they will not believe the written word of God, they'll not believe though somebody comes back from the grave and back from the dead. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Having a copy of the divinely preserved, inspired Word of God, the written Word, we have everything we need from God for life, living, and eternity.
We don't need more miracles to teach us about God or to convince us there is a God. We don't need folks coming back from the grave to convince us about God. We have the written word of God. We just simply need to believe. There are so much, so many more things that I would like to say. But having the word of God is of no value unless you believe the word of God. We simply need to read it and believe it. He says, take heed. And in our text, we have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as in a light. We need to read it, study it. We don't need to rewrite it. Just reread it and obey it. But with that comes a privilege and a responsibility. Because we have the Word of God, we need to defend its purity, its preservation, and give it to those that don't have it. The Word of God is a wonderful Bible, a miraculous book, has the greatest message of ever. But if we do not deliver it to those who have never heard, it will not do them any good. And so we need to be faithful, number one, in simply believing God's Word and obeying God's Word and getting the Word of God to those that have never heard. This is what National Bible Publishing Month is about, is reassuring us in our commitment to God's Word and delivering it to those in need. Father, we come to you this morning. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for. And Father, I, I can only know by God's Word where I would be if I did not have a copy of the Word of God, if nobody would have shared the message from God's Word. And so, Father, I'm thankful that I've had that privilege. Now let me give that opportunity to someone else. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. For more information about Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland, Colorado, you may visit our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com. If you wish to donate to this radio ministry, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to P.O. Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Or you may go to our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the Give tab. We would love to have you visit our regular Sunday services with morning worship at 9.30, Sunday school at 10.50, and Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And until we meet again, be sure you are...
disaster, especially weather-related, when the power goes out, can cause people to suddenly panic. Within hours, grocery store shelves in your area can be picked clean. Food supply lines get interrupted and food is hard to find. At that point, it's too late to do anything about it. You must survive only on the food you already have in your home or risk waiting for the government to respond while you're standing in food lines. So ask yourself, do you have enough food in your home to last for weeks or months? 
That's why the smart move is to secure your family's personal supply of the most reliable emergency food you can buy. Having at least four weeks worth of food is not a luxury. It's mandatory. If you don't want you and your family to end up in this situation, go to 1360KHNC.com and click on the Patriot Supply button at the top of the page. That's 1360KHNC.com and click on the Patriot Supply button. You've probably been hearing me talk about Y-Refi for a while now. Y-Refi has been getting a ton of phone calls, and I want to thank you for supporting and investing in something that actually helps people. A lot of people are talking about this investment, so I'd like to review the basics with you. First off, yes, it's true. You can earn up to 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and there are absolutely no fees. There is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back and your monthly statements will have no surprises. If you're not sure if you can trust this economy, this secure collateralized portfolio may be a good option for you. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com or call them at 888-Y-REFI-24. That's 888-Y-REFI-24. Tell them Joe sent you. The Blue Dragon Spa is a man-friendly spa with women bringing their husbands and significant others in for pedicures all the time. Men's feet hurt too, don't forget. Blue Dragon Spa, 1811 Hover Street, Suites A and B, Longmont, Colorado, 720 ETI is your local one-stop shop for all your heavy equipment needs. From rebuilding your components to helping manage your fleet, our goal is to make your life simple. Our full-service hydraulic and machine shop will meet all your expectations. We also offer free pickup and delivery. Call Jeff at 970-685-2064 with any questions or to schedule a pickup. Again, that's 970-685-2064. As 1360 continues to grow, we want to know what our listeners think. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Give us your feedback. Go to 1360KHNC.com and hit the contact button and give us your thoughts. This is Rick Rodriguez. Christ said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Join me on Sundays from 9 to noon for the Olive Tree and Lampstand Ministry Radio Church Program on 1360 AM KHNC. You're listening to the Roar of the Rockies, 1360 AM, KHNC, Johnstown, Greeley, Loveland, Fort Collins. 